Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, the King of Israel. Then Jesus, when he had found a young donkey, sat on it, as it is written, Fear not, O daughter of Zion. Behold, your king is coming, sitting on a donkey's colt. His disciples did not understand these things. When Jesus was glorified, they, then, then they remembered that these things were written about him, and that they had been done, and that they had done these things to him. Therefore the people who were with him, when he called Lazarus out of the tomb and raised him from the dead, bore witness. For this reason the people also met him, because they heard that he had done this sign. The Pharisees therefore said among themselves, You see that you are accomplishing nothing. Look, the world has gone after him. Thus far, the word of God. Let us pray. O Lord our God, we do marvel that you have spoken, that you have stooped to speak to the sons of Adam, that you condescended even to come to the earth, the living word, the Lord Jesus Christ, that you should not only speak, but that you should work, that the greatest work of all has been accomplished through your beloved Son and our Redeemer. Father, we bless you and praise you that it is finished, that we are uh, rescued and redeemed. We stand before you justified, the free gift of salvation through your Son. And we celebrate that good news. Lord, even as John recounts the unfolding of the events leading up to the crucifixion, Lord, open our eyes, grant us understanding, and by your Spirit, instruct us all. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. The scene changes. We're entering into a new week. This is uh, the first day of the week. Um, this will be that last first day of the week before Christ's resurrection. The next first day of the week will be when Christ comes forward victorious. But the scene has changed. Jesus leaves Bethany's smallness for the largeness of Jerusalem. The city is packed with pilgrims. People have come from near and far, some traveling over uh, nations, some coming by ship, Jews coming up to this special feast, coming for Passover is at hand, and the preparations for Passover have begun. Now, there were three feasts that the Jews kept, and it was required that they be kept in Jerusalem. We've dealt with each of these, the Passover, Pentecost, and the Tabernacles. Uh, We were in chapter 7 a short while ago, and the Feast of Tabernacles was on, and you remember that uh, it was explained that it was the most festive of the festivals. It was the time of the harvest and the celebration of the bounty and the vision of God, and the people were in high spirits and with much celebration. In contrast, Passover was a more solemn feast, a more solemn assembly, as the people remember God's deliverance, for he had delivered them out of Egypt, out of the house of bondage and out of slavery. And he did so by striking down the firstborn throughout all the land. Any house that the death angel came to that did not have blood on the doorpost and the lintel, the death angel struck the firstborn. And Egypt's back was broken and the people were delivered and even driven out. They were, there was the pleading for them that they should go. Well, the Passover was celebrated to remember this, but as we have recounted, the Passover was looking forward. 
the blood of a lamb uh, was but symbolic, a, a sign pointing to the greater one, the Lamb of God, who is the one at the center of the story here. Uh, this Passover is the third during Jesus' public ministry, and the week begins in a manner that stands in contrast to Jesus' usual behavior. Typically, as you make your way through the Gospels, you find Jesus is uh, retiring. He's uh, even been in remote regions as far as Tyre and Sidon. He's uh, traveled away. We've seen him because of the pressure towards seizing him and putting him to death, even stoning. Uh, he has retired even after the resurrection of Lazarus back to the wilderness area along the Jordan River. Uh, certainly, there have been times when Jesus has come into Jerusalem at the time of the feast. We saw it uh, in chapter 7 as he taught on Solomon's porch there in the temple commons. But here we find Jesus, even though the Jewish officials are seeking to arrest him and put him to death, that's the way the last chapter finished, even though that's the case, Jesus is coming. And there's a mass of humanity in Jerusalem, and they've heard that Jesus is coming. Now remember, there's an anticipation in this season in the life of the nation for some time. It wouldn't matter, it's more than months, but a number of years, there's been this expectation that Messiah was soon to come. Here we find Jesus entering the city openly, in public, riding on a donkey's colt. And he did so to a loud celebration of the people, a celebration of joy and remarkable declarations. The people are declaring that he is none other than the king of Israel. Now, let us understand, did they fully understand the meaning of what they were saying? Not so likely. Remember that the high priest had prophesied that one should die for the sake of the people, not fully understanding the weight of what he was saying, and yet it was true. And indeed, it was God's purpose. And here are the people celebrating Christ entering the city. This Jesus of Nazareth, they celebrate as the king of Israel. Not a king of their liking, not a king of their looking, but nonetheless, they're celebrating. For indeed, Jesus' hour is finally come. Not to reign on a throne crafted by men. No, he comes rather to lay down his life as the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. The Jews have long sought to kill him, and now Jesus is forcing their hand. For the time has come. Passover is near. He will die at the time of the Passover, or even on the Passover. And thus Jesus comes in. Listen to J.C. Ryle as he speaks of this time. The time had come at last when Christ was to die for the sins of the world. The time had come that uh, come with a true Passover lamb was to be slain. With the true blood of atonement, which was to be shed when Messiah was to be cut off. According to the prophecy of Daniel 9.26, when the way into the holiest was to be opened by the true high priest of all mankind. Knowing this, he placed himself prominently under notice of the whole Jewish nation. He died in a week when by... His remarkable public entry into Jerusalem, he had caused all the eyes of Israel to be specifically focused on him. Indeed, this is that pivotal point in all of history. 
As Jesus comes as the Savior of the world, the Father having sent him into the world, that whosoever should believe on him should not perish but have everlasting life. It all comes to this week. This is the week of all weeks. This is the the pivot point in all history. This is uh, the remarkable time when man is delivered, man who is without hope in the world and in the bondage of sin. Indeed, the Savior has come. He is entering the city, and he goes up that he might lay down his life. What seems so uh, counterintuitive and so paradoxical Paradoxical, it was indeed the will of God and the work of God that through Jesus Christ, sinners, yea, even us, could be saved. And indeed it is so. It is finished and salvation is found in the Son. We're going to use three main headings this morning. The grand entry. And then we're going to consider the king of Israel as the people proclaimed. And then we're going to look at three responses to this entry of the king. We begin with the grand entry, again, verses 12 and 13. The next day, remember they were on the evening at the close of the Sabbath. They were celebrating in the house of Simon the leper that evening hours after the Sabbath was over. And it was the next day, the first day of the week, the great multitude had come to the feast. And they heard that Jesus was coming to Jerusalem. They took branches of palm trees and went out to meet him and cried out, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, the King of Israel. John says a great multitude. Josephus is a historian of this era. This Jewish historian from this period, he he writes that a census was taken at one Passover, and it was found that 2,700,000 people had come. Now, Historians uh, have concluded that Josephus sometimes overstated things, that he would embellish his numbers. But nonetheless, there's little doubt that the crowd was at least a half a million and perhaps much more. Even in our day, do we not see disputes over assemblies and how many are present, depending on whose side you're on and when you're counting? But nonetheless, let us make no mistake, this is a massive multitude. Jerusalem is packed. Uh, You could say that people are are finding a place to sleep in every corner, every uh, abode, every place with a roof, every place is taken up uh, with a mass of pilgrims that have come in to keep the Passover. We're told that something like 256,000 Passover lambs would be sacrificed in a single year. Jesus' name was on the tongue of everyone. You remember in the earlier chapter that they were seeking for Jesus, verse 56. They were saying, what do you think? Will he not come to the feast? That's what the people are wondering. His pilgrims are coming in. They're hearing about him. The talk is about Jesus, and they're all wondering. This one who has done great and marvelous things who the religious leaders are seeking to put to the death, they, they're searching for him. They've even gone so far as to anyone that say that anyone who would believe on him, they will be put out of the synagogue, as we saw with the man whom Jesus healed, even though he was blind from birth. They're looking for him. Jesus' name is on every tongue. What a great multitude. Uh, the people have come out to honor Jesus. They've come out to see this one because they're hearing what he's done. It's not that long ago that Lazarus, remember the four-day dead man, was raised from the dead. Now, there were those certainly in the Jerusalem and beyond in that region would have heard of this. So it would have been the talk of everyone. You know, if you met someone on the road, you would say, did you hear? Have you heard what happened in Bethany? And that word would have traveled even without throughout Israel, word of mouth, as people recounted what had happened. 
But there are those who are coming in, as I've said. They, they've sailed in on ships. They've worked, walked through older nations across the Roman Empire, all coming to Jerusalem. And they, too, are hearing for the first time of this mighty miracle. And there would have no doubt have been a curiosity. We all know what it is. I mean, we're, we're so curious that there's a backup on the highway, right? And you get closer and closer. You're straining your neck. You want to see what it is. And then you're rubbernecking, as we say, to look behind you and cause another accident. We're so curious about any spectacle, anything out of the norm. And these people are no different. They want to see this one that everyone is talking about. And so as he comes in, these people are, these are common people. People like us, they come from ordinary walks of life. They don't have any great gifts to give to Jesus. They don't have a sword or a crown or a scepter as they celebrate that he is a king. But what they do is they remove palm branches from the trees. Now what they do with the branches is not recorded here. We're just told that they remove them. What we do know is that the palm branch was a symbol of victory. Isn't it interesting that people removing the palm branches... Um, one wonders what was left on the trees because the Feast of Tabernacles uh, a few months back was a time when, uh, in some sense, they stripped the trees and made booze for themselves. But the palm tree, do they do remarkably renew. And so they have palm branches that they are holding in their hands, the symbol of victory. But what the people are doing with their tongues, they are shouting praises to Jesus. Some knowing much about him, there would have been those that would have followed him throughout his ministry. There would have both been those who had encountered him in Jerusalem where there had been residents of that great city uh, that would have seen him on occasion when he had been in Jerusalem teaching in the temple. And then there were those who are just now learning about this one. They've all assembled, a multitude shouting, Not once, but all along the way, the chant, the cry goes up, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, the King of Israel. Doesn't that resonate with such a truth? Isn't this what Jesus has been telling them? I have been sent from my Father. The Father and I are one. I have come from above. I have come from a place that you cannot go to. Jesus indeed is the one that the Father is sent. He is the King of Israel. John records for us, then Jesus, when he had found a young donkey, sat on it, as it is written, and now quoting from Zechariah, Fear not, daughter of Zion, behold, your king is coming, sitting on a donkey's colt. The shouts of the people that are being said there, they, they are drawn from Psalm 118. If you want to look back there, I'm going to read just a couple of verses from Psalm 118. This is a, a psalm that's very much about the coming Messiah that speaks of Christ. And in verse 22, the psalmist speaks of Christ, who is the stone which the builders rejected. He has become the chief cornerstone. This was the Lord's doing, and it was marvelous in our eyes. This is the day the Lord has made. We will rejoice and be glad in it. That is a a looking forward to this day, not only this day of the triumphal entry, but indeed that day of that week as the time is marked. The psalmist goes on, save now, O Lord, I pray. O Lord, I pray, send now prosperity. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. We have blessed you from the house of the Lord. You see, the people, these ordinary people, they know the scriptures. And the scriptures are in their praise. 
They're celebrating that the Messiah is coming. They understand that these words are connected with the Messiah, that the psalm, uh, speaking of the cornerstone, was speaking of one who would come and accomplish great things. And with these words of praise, the people did three things. One, the first thing, the people acknowledged Jesus as their king. They acknowledged him as their king. Do they understand that? You remember after Jesus fed the 5,000 with a few loaves of bread and two fishes, they they were ready to take him. That crowd was ready to take him and make him king. And he uh, slipped away and retired from them. But these people acknowledged that he was their king. The rulers have rejected him. Because if indeed he is their king, their place is uh, taken away from them. It's given to another. It's given to one who is greater. But the people are celebrating the nature of this one, the person of this one, the role of this one, the majesty of this one whom God has sent. Second, the people are wishing him well. Hosanna is a word of praise, something like a, a prayer of blessing, um, a pronouncement of blessing is, is to say, well, the Lord bless you. Well, it's invoking a blessing from God. And what is it they say? Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. They recognize that Jesus has not come of his own accord. There's an acknowledgement of what he's been saying all along, that he was sent from the Father into this place. Thirdly, the people with this welcome him to Jerusalem. Think about that. How many times Jesus has left Jerusalem. The religious leaders are seeking him. They want to seize him. They want to put him to death. And yet here is this mass of pilgrims that have come up for the Passover feast and they welcome Jesus as he enters the city. What a stark, stark contrast, a sharp contrast between those in leadership. Furthermore, what we are seeing here is a fulfillment of Psalm 24. Psalm 24, we've sung these words in our worship. We will do so again. But what is the the psalm celebrating? Lift up your heads, O ye gates. There's the little gates of the city. Jesus will enter through those. But the gates in the Old Testament were the place of leadership. It was the place where the elders sat. It's where government was dispensed. And here is the psalmist celebrating, lift up your heads, O you gates, and be lifted up, you everlasting door, doors. The king of glory shall come in. Who is this king of glory? The question is asked. The Lord, strong and mighty. The Lord, mighty in battle. Lift up your heads, O you gates. Lift up, you everlasting doors. The King of glory shall come in. Who is this King of glory? The Lord of hosts. He is the King of glory. Now the psalm celebrates a great and a mighty king. One would have this expectation of a, a, a mighty warrior coming from the battlefield, uh, uh, seated upon a, a mighty stallion or riding in a chariot with uh, captives behind him and the spoils of war behind him. But here's Jesus, lowly, riding on the colt of a donkey. Just a young donkey, not even fully mature. And he rides into the city. Is he strong and mighty? Oh, yes. 
Oh, yes, my friends. He goes to the greatest battle of all that was foretold by God in the garden that he would crush the serpent's head even as the serpent bruised his heel. This is the battle of all battles. This is the battle that has everything to do with our salvation, whether we remain dead in trespasses, whether we die and perish under the wrath of God as sinners. Christ has come as the mighty conquering king to set his people free. He comes strong and mighty to save a people unto God, even those whom God has given to him. And he is mighty in battle. But it all seems so counterintuitive. Isaiah will tell us that he, he had no appearance or comeliness, no form that he should be desirable to us, that he was not, you know, Mr. Universe all bulked out in muscles. He looked like an ordinary man, perhaps he even looked somewhat uh, demure. But yet, he's the mighty his battle was not with flesh and blood. He did not come to overthrow kingdoms. He came to overthrow the kingdom of Satan, the kingdom of darkness, and to break the yoke of bondage upon sinners so that we could celebrate even as Luther did. The just shall live by faith. It's not by works that we are saved. But there are no good works that we can do because we are sinners. All our works are corrupted and festered and fouled by our sin. We're saved by grace through faith. This Jesus came to this mighty work. Indeed, did he enters the city, does he look threatening? Does he look like one going forth to war? And yet, no, he did not. And yet he was going to the greatest battle of all. And he will come forth victorious. Indeed, John describes the picture to us of the manner which Jesus entered. Lowly, it's what the prophet Zechariah had foretold. Zechariah 9, 9, Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout, O daughter of Jerusalem. And she is. The mass is there. They're doing that, even as the prophet uh, enjoined uh, them to do. Behold, your king is coming to you, and he is just and having salvation. That's what he came to do. Lowly, riding on a donkey, a colt, the fold of a donkey. Isn't that remarkable? The prophet, it's not just a donkey. He knows that the donkey that Jesus will ride on is, but the young foal of a donkey. That's what Jesus will come in. Not on a mighty horse, not in a mighty chariot, but on a borrowed donkey. A borrowed foal of an ass. He came slowly enter into the people. Donkeys don't move fast. But as he did, he entered the city. He comes along at such a pace that the people along the way to behold him. They can see him. This one who they've heard so much about. He's entering the city. Perhaps later, the apostles, the people who followed Christ would have remembered that moment. when The people are celebrating and yet remembering what they saw. A man who had no form or comeliness, even as the prophet Isaiah had said. He's not clothed in royal robes, fine purple, blue, scarlet. Great men usually are greatly robed. But here was the greatest of all humanity, arrayed in humility, riding on a borrowed foal of a donkey. This picture teaches us that Jesus' kingdom was not of this world, even as he said, John records in the scene before us today what is further, were the, the further steps of humiliation of Christ. Those steps that Paul describes so magisterially, so eloquently in Philippians 2. 
Jesus made himself of no reputation, taking the form of a bondservant, that is a slave, and coming in the likeness of men, and he being found in the appearance of a man, he humbled himself and became obedient to the point of death, even the death of the cross. Jesus looked just like a man, not even a remarkable man, humbled in humility to go and endure the greatest humiliation of all. Some years, even decades later, Jesus will see this same Jesus, the Son of God, in exalted state as he is carried in the Spirit on the Lord's day up into heaven. And there he saw Jesus surrounded by myriads upon myriads of angels, the 24 elders all around at the throne singing praises to the Lamb of God. And John beheld uh, one from whose presence the heaven and the earth fled away. John writes, And after these things I looked, and behold, a great multitude which no one could number. All the nations, tribes, peoples, tongues, standing before the throne and before the Lamb, clothed with white robes, with palm branches in their hands. There's a foreshadowing even here on that first day of the week. What were they doing? They were crying out with a loud voice saying, Salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. Celebrating what Jesus here in our scene in John 12 is going to do. Celebrating the accomplishment of it. That he is exalted high above the all the earth. Which is why Paul goes on to write in Philippians 2, Therefore, because he's done this, because he suffered such indignation and humiliation, God has highly exalted him and given him a name which is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow, of those in heaven and those on the earth and those under the earth, and that every tongue should confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Hosanna. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, the King of Israel. Behold your king. The people celebrate him as their king. At the end of the week, Pilate will have him in bonds before him with a sentence of death upon him and once more say, Behold your king. Let's consider some application before we go on. Jesus came from heaven to do his Father's will. He came to redeem a people from sin. In order to do that, he humbled himself, even to the point of death. And if we would have him as our Savior, then we must embrace this humility. We must come to him in humility. We embrace his humility and his victory. If we would have, be partakers of his victory, that we come to him in humility. Even as we sing in the one hymn, nothing in my hand I bring. There's a necessity. It is required of us that we should recognize I have nothing to barter with. I cannot bargain with God. I cannot negotiate with God. All that is upon me is to cast myself before him in humility and recognition that I am worse than a worm. I'm filthy, an unwashed sinner, and my only hope is found in the Lord Jesus Christ alone. Jesus hears such sinners come to him pleading for mercy. He extends his hand. He grants mercy. He lifts us up in life, giving us a new life in the working of the generation of the Holy Spirit. And he brings us to the Father. My friends, if you would have salvation, you must humble yourself before this holy God of heaven. We are great sinners. We have a great Savior.
echoes of John Newton. And this salvation that is in Christ is by faith alone, not by works. We have nothing in which to boast. We all sit here equal before the cross, equally before our Savior, sinners who have been saved by grace. That's true for all, down through the ages. Well, secondly, we consider this king, the king of Israel. John ties Jesus' entry, as we've seen, to the prophecy of Zechariah. But this prophecy is tied back to an earlier prophecy. Some of you listen to Mortification of Spin, and I don't know, maybe a month, six weeks ago, they had a, a guest on who's written a book. And, and in his book, he's looking at prophecies in Scripture. And what he was noting is that uh, later prophets will quote earlier prophets. They say in minor prophets, some of their words are, are restating or clarifying uh, you know, by the, the will of God and the Spirit of God, adding to, opening up, making clear prophecies that had come before. And my friends, one of the chief of all these, indeed the, the earliest prophecy in Scripture, there in Genesis 3, is when God said that there would be the seed of the woman who will crush the serpent's head, even as the serpent bruised his heel. Here's this foretelling of the coming of Christ. And those of you that know your scriptures, you know that that uh, somewhat uh, veiled, um, um, something, uh, uh, prophecy, something of clouded in a fog and a mist, as the scriptures unfold, there's greater and greater clarity about who this seed is, so that Abraham is told that he would have a seed through whom all the nations we bless. So we come to... Uh, Genesis 49, which is what I wanted to think about, Jacob, as a prophet, he is old and about to die. He has his 12 sons come before him, and he blesses them and prophesies over them. And when he does so, speaking to his son Judah, he says, the scepter shall not depart from Judah. It is from Judah that will come the ruler. So he goes on, the scepter shall not depart from Judah, nor a lawgiver from between his feet until Shiloh comes. And to him shall be the obedience of the people. Bind his donkey with a vine, and his donkey's colt to the choice vine. He washes his garments in wine, and his clothes in the blood of grapes. We're not going to unpack all that. We, we did uh, some years ago when we were in Genesis. But here is the prophecy of Zechariah about the king coming, looking back to the prophecy of Jacob concerning Judah. That the seed that God foretold in the garden. The seed that God told to Abraham. Well, now it's become clear that he will come from Jacob's son, Judah. He is the one who will reign. And so we see firstly that Jesus, Mary's son, was born of the line of David. Both Luke and Matthew make this point as they chase the genealogies of Joseph and as of Mary, Luke bringing Mary's down, that Jesus was of the tribe of Judah and a descendant of David. Furthermore, he was Abraham's seed through whom all the nations of the earth would be blessed. And so Jesus enters the city, enters into Jerusalem, the city of David, the city established by David to the glory of God, indeed under God's direction and by the mighty working of God, driving out the Jebusites, taking that stronghold and making it the capital city, the city of David. They are establishing the place where Solomon his son would build the, the temple where God would be worshipped. Jesus enters the city of David, the royal city, to a royal welcome. Indeed, the king long expected has come. This is what the angels celebrated to the shepherds when Christ was born. That indeed, 
the one who would bless the nations, had come. Secondly, we see Jesus Christ as king who will look after the needs of his people. Week by week, children, you hear from this pulpit the law of God. And we just recently dealt with the fifth commandment and how superiors have responsibilities to their inferiors. Uh, most uh, familiar, what you see most, is you know, your parents have responsibilities to fulfill to you as children. Uh, they put clothes on your back. Uh, they provide you a bed to sleep in, a, a comfortable home. They put food in your bellies. Uh, they care for you. That's what superiors do. Well, Jesus is the superior of all superiors. Highly and exalted, dependent on nothing, on no one, self-existent, the eternal God. And indeed from him flow all good things. And indeed he is the chief gift of the Father. As James write in James 1.17, coming down from the Father of lights, this great gift. This great gift. And Jesus is the mighty king. And his people have a real need. As a good king, he sees the need of his people. What does he see? They are sinners. For three years, he has walked among them in ministry. And before that, he grew up in a household of sinners. He grew up in the little village of, of Nazareth, a place without faith and surrounded by sinners. And he sees the need. Uh, when he goes to Lazarus' tomb, the, the raging within him as he sees what sin and Satan has accomplished. He sees the need of his people. And for this very purpose, he has come into the world. This king has come to deliver a people who are in rebellion against he and his father and the Holy Spirit. They are dead in sin and iniquity. He has come to deliver them from that which they deserve. They deserve wrath, hell, fire, brimstone for all eternity. And he's come to deliver them even from that. And in order for Jesus, this great king, to deliver his people, it was necessary that he stoop and humble himself to the painful, shameful death of the cross. It was necessary they lay down his life. He came into the world in humility, humility, born of a virgin, a, a poor woman born in a state, born in a cable, a cable, a cattle stall, and he lived in humility. In obscurity, and when he began his ministry, he didn't even have a home. He didn't have not a place to lay his head. He was despised and rejected by men. But Jesus' hour had come, and as the King of Israel, he goes, knowing that wicked men will crucify him out of hate. But God, his Father, who chose a people in Christ before the foundation of the earth and gave them to His Son, Jesus, as our superior. Out of his great love and obedience to his father, will lay down his life to rescue us from sin. As the king of Israel, Jesus was to become the sin bearer. He would become the ultimate Passover lamb, the, the lamb of all lambs, the lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world, that his blood and his blood alone, when shed, could atone for sin, that could wash away the filth and the corruption and the blackness of our sin and wash us as white as the driven snow. Passover, long looked for this event, and it has come. The king enters the city he will go out of the city carrying a Roman cross to be crucified. Thirdly, do not let this slow entry on a colt give you doubts. 
Jesus came, surely. There was no shrinking back. There was no hesitancy. It was for this purpose that he came into the world. He was the gift of the Father, and indeed, as the Father had given to us, he was to give gifts unto men. Because the Father so loved the world, he gave his only begotten Son. And because the Son so loved his people, he will give his life for his people. His slow entry was not a picture of reluctance, but it was a steadfast walk to lay down his life. Jesus knew that the cries of the people here and now of Hosanna, blessed is he who comes at the end of the week, will be cries of crucify him. And yet he came. As the scripture says in another place, his face was set like flint. He was going to deal with the will of the Father. The daughter of Zion has been called to recognize her king. Just as Solomon wrote in the Song of Solomon uh, 3.11, Go forth, O daughters of Zion, and see King Solomon, a type of Christ. Go forth and see King Solomon with a crown, which, with which his mother has crowned him on the wedding day, the day of gladness of heart. Solomon's prophetic words in that remarkable book look to this moment as well. And there... The daughters of Zion are enjoined to go forth. See your king. Solomon pointing to him. Indeed, as the song of Solomon speaks so much of Christ, our beloved, and we, his beloved. Now, in this moment, the people do not recognize who he was. What do they see? They see a rabbi who has fed thousands with a few loaves and fish. They see a healer of diseases, even of leprosy. They see one who has set the demon-possessed at liberty. One who could raise the dead, even a four-day dead man. But the people have completely forgotten the prophecy. And the prophecy in Zechariah says, Fear not. Fear not, O daughter of Zion. Behold, your king is coming. What is this about fear not? It is the fear of man that will turn this crowd against Jesus. The fear of man. Even the the religious leaders, it's the fear of man. They love their position, their power, their prestige, and they have fear of man, the Roman Empire, the Roman governor, that they should somehow have things displaced. My friends, does that not resonate with you? By and large our, large, our lives have been comfortable. We've enjoyed so much peace and liberty in this country, but do we not see dark clouds, as it were, that pretend a dark future? But fear not. Fear not, man. Fear God and keep his commandments. Do not fear what man can do to you. He can destroy your body. Rather fear the one who has the power to destroy your body and soul in hell. But if indeed you're in Christ, you have nothing to fear. Whereas as, uh, as Daniel, as Hananiah, Azariah, and Mishael, we don't need to fear the fires of Nebuchadnezzar or whatever the world may seek to do with this. We're the daughter of Zion. Fear not, O daughter of Zion. Fear not man, what man may do to us. We are a people who have been set free. We are a people who have been delivered from the power of sin from the power of death, from the power of the grave. We've been set free from hell and we've been 
in Christ, carried into the heavenlies. There's nothing in this world that can do us any ultimate harm. Therefore, lift up your hands, O you gates, and be lifted up, you everlasting doors. The King of glory shall come in. Who is this King of glory? The Lord strong and mighty, the Lord mighty in battle. He is coming again, and he will come in a mighty victory. Thirdly, let's consider from the text the responses to the entry of this king. We have seen this before. John, in his gospel, uh, provides, uh, after some major event, uh, various responses. Sometimes it's two. Here there's three responses to these events. The disciples are there, verse 16. His disciples did not understand these things at first. But when Jesus was glorified, months, a couple months later, then they remembered that these things were written about him and that they had done these things to him. The disciples, most likely it's the 12 in view here, although there were other disciples. Remember Jesus sent out 72 at one point. Uh, when they gather in the upper room after Jesus' ascension, there's 120. How many of these disciples? But they didn't understand, probably the 12 though. They're there with Jesus. They've been there with Jesus. They've seen his works. They've heard his works. But no doubt they're walking along the street with him when hosannas are being shouted. Uh, They've come up to Jerusalem. Uh, Even uh, they came back when uh, Lazarus was sick, as they were told, and then died and, you know, objecting to the Lord. But they're seeking your life. And they've gone up. And then they retired back to the region of the Jordan. And and now they've come back with, you know, all of Israel knowing that the religious leaders are seeking, seeking him. And There's a threat of death. And yet, they're walking into the city and the people are celebrating. Hosanna! Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Here is the king of Israel. Confusion? There's no doubt they were confused. They can make sense of all these things. What does it all mean? Death is in the air. Jesus has told them that he is going up to Jerusalem to die. Yes. Multiple times. And the people have been talking about it. Because of the commands of the chief priests. Back in verse 57 of the previous chapter, but even further back. Mary has just anointed Jesus for burial. And yet they're walking into the city to a celebration. Going into the city of David with a massive crowd celebrating their master. Confusion. John tells us, writing later, his gospel written much later, maybe the last of the gospels, indeed the last of the gospels written years later, he says that then they remembered, after Jesus was glorified, they remembered these things that were written about him, some of the very prophecies that we've just looked at. They remembered. Remember Jesus said that after he'd go, he'd send the Comforter, the Holy Spirit, who would instruct them in all things and call these things to their remembrance. And, And so they write the gospels. As the Holy Spirit has done that. And then the things begin to make sense to them as the Holy Spirit is their teacher, opening the scriptures, giving them understanding of these prophecies. My friend, we who believe on Jesus for salvation have the same teacher. Just think about that. Don't undersell that. Don't um, lightly esteem the, the relationship that we have through God, with God through the Lord Jesus Christ, by the powerful working of the Holy Spirit, whom the Lord has given to us 
the Spirit proceeding from the Father through the Son, even into us. The same Spirit that gave these men understanding. So later after Jesus was glorified, they, they could reflect on these things and come to understand them in the light of the Word of God. They made sense to them. My friends, that's how we are to live our lives. This was a remarkable experience for them. It would be months before they understood it. Maybe even as the years unfolded and they're writing the scriptures, searching the scriptures, and they really be and they're like, yes, I see it. My friends, we have the same spirit to teach us. So let us learn to measure and understand our experiences by the word of God, not the other way around. Don't read your experiences into the word of God. That is incredibly dangerous. But evaluate your experiences by the word of God. And rejoice, you have been given the Holy Spirit. The same Spirit that gave those men understanding. When you open the Scriptures uh, to read, even as we open the Scriptures for the preaching of the Word, what do we do? We pray for a prayer of illumination. Holy Spirit, instruct us. Give clarity as the Word is proclaimed. Get us clarity as we hear. And even as we go from this place, we meditate on these things as we should, as we discuss them with our children in our homes throughout the week, that we should grow in our understanding and that this biblical truth should reverberate and resonate through our lives, giving us a clarity for life. But here's the people as well. Verse 17. These people who are shouting, therefore the people who were with him, when he called Lazarus out of the tomb and raised him from the dead, bore witness. So within this crowd, there's this particular group. There's, there's a subset, a smaller group who were in Bethany. They were there at the tomb when Jesus spoke and said, Lazarus, come forth. That's who John's talking about. They were there when he raised him from the dead. They bore witness. They're telling uh, the people around them. Isn't that what we do? You get something really exciting, right? You get the really good bargain. It's the bargain of all bargains. If you got your bargain, you want to tell other people, right? Uh, you, you find a, a great place to visit. Uh, you're on vacation in the White Mountains, and you come to this glorious setting where you pull off the side of the road, and you tell others. You, we tend to relate these things, but these people have seen a dead man raised from the dead. They're telling others. They're in the crowd, and they're telling this marvelous story. They're bearing witness to what has happened. And John says, for this reason, the people also met him. So what we've been hearing about, John tells us on this end of it, why they came. They've been hearing about what happened in Bethany a matter of a couple months ago. For this reason, the people met him because they heard that he had done this sign. Remember that sign of the raising of Lazarus is a mighty miracle. It's Jesus' pinnacle of miracles. There's no more in John's gospel except for that miracle of all miracles that the resurrection of Lazarus points to, that Jesus is the resurrection of the life, that indeed he will raise himself from the dead as the Father raises him from the dead, the Holy Spirit raises from the dead. What a sign. The sign of Lazarus is pointing to an event that will take place exactly one week from this day. One week from this day, Jesus will break the bonds sin, death, and grave come forth victorious and mighty. And thirdly, there's the Pharisees. You get that idea when we're in John? It's like, they're always lurking around the corner, right? You just turn the corner, you pass, oh, yeah, there's the Pharisees down that alley. Step out into the cross, oh, there's the Pharisees. They're there, but they're spies, they're everywhere. But in this case, they're, they're gathered. All this is happening. 
Imagine him greatly troubled. Some of you have seen the Lord of the Rings when his Sauron's up in his tower and things are all going, running amok as the, the, the trees come forth and they destroy all his machinery for war and he's pacing about trouble. I, I picture the Pharisees like that. Or King Herod, when he's heard that king has been born. The king of Israel, pacing about, wringing their hands, fretting. The Pharisees therefore said among themselves, you hear the aggravation, the frustration. You see that you're accomplishing nothing. All their efforts, all their sighs, all their warnings to the people, all their threats. And Jesus is heading to the cross according to the will of the Father and the fulfillment of the prophecies. You're accomplishing nothing. You can see he's like throwing up the hand. Look, the world has gone after him. We've accomplished nothing. This man from obscurity, this carpenter's son from Nazareth, the whole world has gone out after him. We've worked and labored to have people follow us and obey us and be subservient to us. And he comes in humility, and the whole world has gone out after him. And my friends, that's still true today. As God pours out his spirit through the preaching of the gospel, the whole world has gone out after him. Even as the prophets foretold from every tribe, every tongue, every nation, God has gathered the people. The whole world has gone out after him. Because he is the mighty one. He's the mighty one of all. They were powerless in their plans. They could not overthrow the will of God. It'll be later that a certain Gamaliel will express the same thing as the apostles are doing mighty works. So if, if this is of God, you're wasting your time, to th- time trying to thwart it. Indeed, it is so. It is true today. So they fretted. Here we see the echoes from back in John chapter 11, uh, verse 47. When the chief priests and the Pharisees gathered in the council, they said, What should we do? For this man works mighty signs. That's right after Lazarus was raised. If we let him alone like this, everyone will believe in him. And the Romans will come and take away both our place and our nation. There's their fear of man. That's what they're terrified of. And here he's come in triumphant. And there's nothing they can do about it. What we see in these three responses, as we conclude when asked the question, what's your response to this king? I've asked that question often. It's a question that's relevant throughout John's gospel. He wrote this gospel. He records these things. He reports these things so that you might hear who this Jesus is. This king who has come forth from heaven and yet walked in humility. He would have us to understand that he is the Messiah. He's the anointed one of God, the Son of God, and that we should believe that, and so believing we will have life in his name. There's no greater love than any man has that he should lay down his life for his friends. That's exactly what Jesus did. He who is love has demonstrated his love for us while we were yet sinners. Christ died for us. What's your response Is it like the disciples? Do you have confusion? Then pray to God. Lord, give me clarity. Open my eyes that I might see Jesus in his majesty. Are you like the people, fickled, kind of blown about by the the winds of the time and the signs of the wonders? Pray to God that he would give you a heart fixed and a faith fixed upon Christ. Are you like the Pharisees, filled with hatred for Christ? Plead with God to break your heart. And to give you a heart of humility and tenderness to this one. For he is Christ, 
the Son of God. Do you believe this? Amen. Well, Lord our God, we do marvel at the events of the week that are before us as we make our way through this marvelous book that your spirit inspired John to write so long ago. Father, we, we see as it, with all the scriptures, it's living, active, powerful. And this focuses upon Christ, even as all the pages of scripture are. Lord, we thank you for what we've seen and heard this day. Lord, bless us to go forth and to meditate on these things, to discuss them with amongst ourselves, that we might be encouraged We don't need to fear man because we fear our God and from you we have received salvation. We pray in Jesus' name, amen.